Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. For ophthalmology residents, you figure that reviewing for OCAPs, boards, or clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week, we are talking about vitreomacular macular traction and macular holes with a special guest star, Dr. Jay Schreiter, from the podcast Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. So before we kick into macular holes, we are want to really welcome Dr. Schreeder to the podcast. We're super excited to have him on. He was a big inspiration for our podcast and for our, our goals within medical education. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You guys have done a really inspirational job with this podcast. I love listening to and telling my residents to listen. So uh, I'll keep up the good work. It's been really nice. Oh, it's awesome. Thank you for helping us get downloads in Florida. We appreciate it. Um, so if you don't mind, just in case some of our listeners haven't done themselves justice and listened to your podcast, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, um, where you currently are and what you're you're currently up to? Sure. Yeah. I'm an assistant professor of uh, clinical ophthalmology here at Baskin Palmer at, at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida. Uh, I did my training. I did my residency here. Uh, did my fellowship uh, up at Wills in Philadelphia in a surgical retina. And then I uh, came back. I've been doing the, our own podcast now for going to be three years in November, so about two and a half years now. And wow. um, in terms of projects, you know, besides the podcast, obviously a bunch of different uh, small research projects, building a clinical career. Um, there's all sorts of stuff you'll see uh, you guys will encounter as you uh, move <laughs> on. One of my attendings told me in fellowship that doesn't get less busy, it just gets more busy. And uh, we all laughed. But it does true. It definitely gets busier. Just so people can know a little bit more about your podcast, Dr. Schreeder, can we ask you what drove you to make your own podcast? Well, it's funny you use the word drove because it was driving, actually. So I, I commuted a fair bit as a resident. Uh, Miami traffic is not as notorious as Los Angeles traffic, but it's pretty bad, and it's only gotten worse. And so I experienced a lot of commuting when I was a resident. I think podcasts were out, but I clearly wasn't cool enough to be listening to any at that point. So <laughs> I was listening to a lot of talk radio and repetitive ads, and it yeah. was just bad. I, I really made me dislike commuting. Did my fellowship in a place where I lived across the street from the hospital, so I didn't really commute at all. And in the meantime, I started listening to podcasts. I discovered them. I would listen to them when I work out or walk around uh, the streets of Philadelphia. And then I was going to come back here to Baskin. And actually, when I first signed here, it's funny, I was just looking this week back through some emails. I was originally going to be commuting quite a fair bit to some of our satellites that are far away. And so I was just mentally brainstorming as I finished fellowship, talking to my attendings. And I remember talking to one of my mentors, Senior Garg, and I was like, look, I got to figure out something useful to do. It'd be great. if there, Do you know any like resource where I could listen to? Maybe I could do some learning, like retina learning on the go. And he's like, there is no resource. Why don't you just do it? And I was like, that's a great idea. And then I didn't do anything with it. Uh, I was just like, that's a great idea. I'll put that in my back pocket. And then, you know, my job function changed. You know, things changed around here. And I ended up not commuting that much. And I remember... Started in September and went to Academy maybe a month later, feeling a little bad to go to Academy because I just started and I had like zero patients. And uh, I was chatting with one of my buddies and I was like, he was he was complaining about how much he commuted for work. And I was like, you know, I remember when I was planning for that, I was like, would it be great if we had like a retina resource? And he was like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm like, yeah, I was going to do it, but I didn't really do anything for it. And he's like, oh, you should do it. And I was like, I don't know anything about podcasting. And he said, well, you're a smart guy. Uh, I'm sure you could figure it out. And uh and I was like, you know what? And, and I think it's a perfect storm. You guys can talk a little bit about this too, maybe. You know, you, you got to have 
it, you have to have an idea and you have to have time. Like the timing has to be right. And it was a good time for me to start working on it because I didn't have a busy clinical practice. I didn't have any ongoing projects. I'd wrapped up my projects from fellowship, hadn't started my projects as an attending. So I had a lot of downtime and, and it gave me time to research and, and make it semi-automated to the point now when I'm really busy, we can still keep it going two and a half years later. So it's been, you know, people have liked it. And the most important thing is people have learned something from it, enjoyed it. And that, that's what keeps us going. Right. And yeah, you know, I think people love the your podcast. You know, when we go other places, everyone mentions your podcast, too, and how much they love and learn from it. You know, just to give listeners an idea, um, Dr. Schrieder's podcast is it's different from uh, ours. His it's more of a um, talk show. You always have some guests on the show who will talk about some topic or some journal club or, you know, within retina or maybe more globally within ophthalmology. You help get great information and discussion out with them. So, you know, one question that we had, you always have, you know, awesome, varied guests on the show. We were wondering, how do you, you know, always get such such great guests? I think the key is just not to be afraid of a lack of response or rejection. It's very rare that I get someone responding say they don't want to do it uh, either. And it's pretty, I would say my yield is pretty good. I think about two thirds of people I cold email respond with a yes. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't in follow-up trying to plan the, the, the recordings, they don't respond. And, and people are really busy. I mean, there's a lot of the people I'm trying to get on are super busy, have multiple things going on, and you know, they get an email from a random guy about a podcast that's probably not high on the priority list. But I think the key is just, you know, kind of to plan ahead. You guys, you know, have been very consistent. I'm sure you, there's a lot of planning. I think there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that people don't see. It doesn't necessarily have to take a lot of time, but it does take some mental planning to kind of stay ahead of the game so you're consistent. And so for me, you know, I, I'll try to like map out episodes for the next couple months, at least at least keep the list. And, and sometimes the chronology changes. You know, it's a little different than you guys because you're going through different OCAPs topics and you can kind of mix and match. But sometimes something comes out that we need to talk about or I'd like to talk about sooner or it's more timely or to release it now than later. And so sometimes people record with me and then two months later, their podcast comes out. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is just reaching out to people. People are overall very receptive to the idea. I think just depending on the generation you're you're reaching out to some people just need to be explained what a podcast is and what it would involve and you know once you explain it's just basically a phone call and you're just going to chat uh, we we definitely do a much more less structured than what you guys do your guys is much higher yield from that standpoint we were just you know we're like the line at what is the original prototype we're like the apple II, and you guys are like windows you know no no, no. so so (laughs) build getting bigger and better better over time except right now because i'm hijacking your show and it's not as succinct as it usually is yeah no we love having you on so talking about a little bit about how your podcast has such had such enduring success again notice that congratulations i think you just released episode 173 was it this week and actually, 73. Yeah, yeah, 174 actually just, I, I lose count. One, I think 173 <laughs> or 174 just came out. No, 173 came out yesterday. 174 is going to come out later this week. You're right. Yeah, You're on top of it. That's yeah. amazing and definitely inspirational and very co. Uh, I, I want to claim credit for planning this out, but it works out well that I think your recent episode was about macular holes as well, or at least in part. Macular holes. Yeah, let's, let's do macular holes. Macular holes are great. I love macular holes, especially right. when they're fixed. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we can get started uh, talking about that particular topic, which is the topic for this episode today with, again, our special guest star, Jay Schreeder. We'd love to actually just spend a whole episode interviewing Dr. Schreeder, but he actually has an interview on his own podcast. It's episode 100 from Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. So if you want to hear more about Dr. Schreeder, his life and medical education, we highly recommend that episode. I just re-listened to it the other day. It's, it's really good. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah, we can start with the a little bit about the pathophys and the epidemiology of macular holes. To start with, maybe some risk factors for who gets them, who does it, who does it tend to happen to. It's usually people in their 50s to 70s, and actually women seem to have a stronger predilection for it, like in a two-to-one ratio of women to men with actually getting macular holes. It's more likely to happen to you younger than the 50s to 70s age if you are significantly myopic. And of course, trauma and ocular inflammation can make it happen as well. It's bilateral in just 10% of cases. Right. Um, and, you know, some risk factors that are thought to um, contribute to macular holes are entities such as vit- vitreomacular adhesion, which is actually usually an asymptomatic problem. That's just where the you can see the posterior hyaloid adhering to, um, the, uh, it, to, to the macula, but hasn't completely detached yet. And then there's vitreomacular macular traction, where you can see that posterior hyaloid adhering to the to the fovea or parafovea, and actually causing deformation of the contour and even cystic changes or foveoschisis in the uh, in the fovea. So those are some demographics, and you know we just in our experience here, I feel like this is a pretty common part of a uh, surgical retina practice. Do you see a lot of this in your practice, Dr. Schreeder? Yeah, yeah. I think that macular hole, I think everything is always skewed. You know, when you're in a practice, you'll get um, more of one thing. If you're in retina practice, you'll see a lot of macular holes more than if you're a comprehensive practice. But I don't think they're they're not super common, but they're common enough that they're one of the most common surgeries that retinal surgeons do. And usually these patients will come in with with a central vision defect, a central scotoma. Occasionally they'll describe some distortion, but really... Really good patients can tell you this really just see a dark spot kind of in the center of their vision. They can sometimes see around it, so the visual acuity can be variable. And on on exam, what the textbooks say and what we typically would see, if you can see it just on your dilated uh, fundus exam, sometimes you can just see the frank macular break, like you can see a clear hole in the retina. Sometimes, though, it's more difficult to see that, but you can see subfovial, um, like a lipofusion colored, like a yellow kind of colored spot or ring. And then if there's a macular break or if you can see that ring, sometimes you can see that cup of subretinal fluid around it. There's uh, something that we've been taught in residency that you can do to test to see whether somebody might have a symptomatic macular hole. It's called the Watsky-Allen test, where you're supposed to make your slit beam at the slit lamp very thin, shine it directly at the patient's macula, and then ask them, do you see a single unbroken line of light or do you see some distortions, bends, or a break there? And actually, Dr. Schreeder, I kind of wanted to ask you about this Mm -hmm. test, um, the Watsky-Allen test. How useful do you ever find it in clinical practice? Because some of our attendings have kind of hinted to us. One actually gave me this cryptic kind of a clue like yeah you know the photoreceptors they're not actually necessarily lost all the time they just might be dislocated so why would patients actually see a break um and i guess i was looking around that got me puzzled and trying to hunt around for the answer for a while and in some of the reading i've done i get the sense that it's not that sensitive of a test so patients don't always see a break even if they have a hole yeah i think I think Watsky-Allen is, is a great example of what was developed by very clever ophthalmologists when they didn't have as good technology at their disposal. So, you know, pre-OCT, right, you're talking about, you're diagnosing a macular hole, a full thickness hole, a lamellar hole, or a partial hole, or an impending hole, we'll talk about staging in a second, 
you're really differentiating that based on your exam. And, and that's a macular contact lens exam back in the day if you're Don Gass or one of his cohorts. And Watsky Allen test was a way for them to kind of differentiate that. And I'm sure that the sensitivity is not as good as OCT. There's no way. Yeah. It, it, it just, right, exactly. There's, there, we see all sorts of things where patients are able to not see the break. But I think that the principle is sound in the sense that if it's a lamellar hole, then they should be able to see it. So if they see the complete line, it doesn't mean they don't have a macular hole. But if they do see that break, then it's suggestive that they do have a macular hole. And, and it, you asked if I use it in my practice, really? I think no. I think we're probably not using it now because we all have OCT at our disposal. Yeah. Um, but if you're in a scenario like an emergency room where, where you had a slit lamp but maybe not an OCT, uh, it could be helpful to kind of differentiate whether or not you're dealing with a partial hole or vitreomacular traction or an actual full hole. Um, so I guess it's uh, sensitive in the sense it will pick up the macular holes, maybe not specific to all. You know, they're not necessarily a hole just because they see the break. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, the bit about using it in the emergency room, I think is really relevant, especially to residents who may be, um, you know, listening to this. If you have a patient with a new scotoma or central vision deficit, that's what you're seeing them. Uh, you, some of you, uh, may know that Andrew is actually one of my seniors and he was, he came like the, I first heard about macular holes and the Watsky Allen test when he came in to see a patient who had this mysterious central vision loss and we did it right there. The guy didn't have a macular hole, so it wasn't positive. <laughs> I do but, remember this. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, he explained it on the fly. It was very, very fancy. So uh, hopefully that's of some use to residents, even if you don't use it in, um, you know, clinical practice very often. I, I, we kind of reference staging, right? And I think staging is something that has changed. Again, we're talking about going back to where the stage came from. And these are the original gas stages that really the OCAPS tests and there may be a migration in the future to newer staging systems. But again, these stages were incredible because they were all pre-OCT, right? So this is all staging done by Don Gas with a contact lens, just looking at 3D, how things looked, um, which is why there's these descriptions of how it looks in terms of stage one with the lipofusion colored ring, et cetera. So um, I don't know if one of you wants to take us through the, the classic staging. I can mention the newer staging once we finish. Oh, yeah, that'd be that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess we'll start. I guess there are kind of four stages, but also the lamellar hole stage. We can consider it pre-stage. Like Dr. Schreeder was just saying, these are the older traditional ways that were likely to be tested on during OCAP or board review, board exams. Um, so five in all, if you count the pre-staged lamellar hole. Starting with the lamellar hole, that'll appear on exam as an irregular foveal contour with a break in the inner fovea. Um, I guess you wouldn't necessarily see that on exam, but pathophysiologically, that's what it is. It's got a preserved photoreceptor layer, though. So while these can have decreased vision, uh, the central scotoma and the metamorphopsias, they could also still have very good visual acuity and, and just even just be asymptomatic, again, because those photoreceptors are actually preserved. I think, Dr. Schreeder, the BCSC actually does kind of mention that this can also be termed vitreomacular adhesion, I think, but I don't know if that's actually the new kind of staging criteria you're kind of referring to with OCT in the mix. Yeah, so the, the new staging is essentially you either have vitreomacular adhesion on OCT where there's adhesion of the posterior highlighter vitreous to the foveal contour, but there's no distortion or loss of the foveal contour. Then there's vitreomacular traction, 
where there's that adhesion still, but there's loss of the contour. There's some sort of tenting, and that can range in severity where there's mild loss of the contour to it's actually tented up. And, and some people, this may be what we refer to if it's really kind of putting traction as what the old stage would call an impending hole when there's significant traction, but a full thickness break is not present. Um, and so a lot of times it will have a, an inner layer roof. And then once you get to full thickness breaks, then it's just subdivided small, medium, large, and the cutoff was size. So 250 microns or less than 250 microns is a small hole, 250 to 400 is a medium hole, and 400 above is a large hole. And the reason these numbers were chosen, and it's important to remember, is the prognosis in terms of closure rate and the options available are different depending on the size. So in general, the larger a hole and the more chronic a hole, the less likely it is to close with whatever intervention you're doing. So that's just something to keep in mind when you see these in terms of what are kind of the treatment options going forward. Appreciate that rundown for the new staging system. Just to be comprehensive and go through the old staging, just in case it pops up on a question again on a test, we've talked about lamellar holes again as kind of maybe analogous to the vitreomacular adhesion uh, stage in the new system. The impending macular hole, which you mentioned earlier, is again the stage one or in the old system where there's loss of foveal depression and where the vision was said to be for kind of range between 2025 to 2060. This is in the newer staging system, I think, what you refer to as vitreomacular traction. And actually, what we've read is that this resolves by itself half the time. So maybe um, treatment is, I guess, geared, like you said, towards those larger sized holes or at least those with advanced stages in the old system. Okay. Ben, do you want to take us through the old system stage two then? Yeah, sure. So stage two is a full thickness break. So not just traction or adhesion, but a full thickness break that's less than 400 microns in size. There may still be an inner layer roof. So maybe a hole with like a little roof over it. So it doesn't, it's not 100% full thickness, but it, it still can, can be considered stage two macular hole. Stage three is greater than 400 uh, microns in size. They usually will have a cuff of seprinol fluid in that case. And then a Stage four is when they have a stage three, so greater than 400 micron in size hole with a PVD and a Weiss ring. And um, also, just in case it helps, to help gauge off the cuff what size these structures might actually be, to reference the central retinal vein, its width is about 125 microns wide. So maybe if you stack a couple of those imaginary ones in your mind together, you can kind of figure out how wide the hole is that you might be seeing. Good. And, um, you know, in terms of a differential, there's not much in the differential. There's such thing as a pseudo hole, which can appear like a macular hole at the slit lamp. But on OCT, you find it's not actually a hole. It just may be uh, a foveal depression with steep borders due to an ERM or some other cause. Otherwise, a macular hole is typically a macular hole unless there's something else uh, you have to add to that, Dr. Schreeder. No, I think that's in OCT area, it's a much easier diagnosis. Um, I guess that brings us then to the management of these holes. And I'm, that means we're very glad to have you on to help us get through this part. But I think uh, your your own episode 173 actually addresses this with the surgical aspect quite well. So listeners, please refer to straight from the cutter's mouth, episode 173 for <laughs> maybe a more higher level discussion on the management of these. But we'll give it a shot here for now. Maybe starting with medical therapy before talking about surgery. Ben, do you want to say what we know at least about acroplasmin, intravitreal acroplasmin? Right. So th this is the only 
medical therapy that we, you know, is really addressed in the main textbook. The idea is that acroplasmin is a protease which can perform pharmacologic vitreolysis. So it can separate that hyoid from the underlying retina to, you know, relieve traction or adhesion. It's obviously would have to be in, um, administered intravitreally. There is there was a um, a good sized clinical trial called the MIVI Trust trial that showed that you know, there, there's many aspects to it, but in brief. In patients who got the intravitreal acroplasmin, 26.5% of them had vitreal retinal release versus 10% of the controls. So that gives you, from our perspective, gives an, an idea for the scale of how well this works. Like it does increase the odds of release of vitreal retinal traction or adhesion, but it's, it, you know, it's not like it's not 100% effective. And the BCSC also mentions a kind of non-specified phase three clinical trial, but they mentioned that it is a little bit more effective for those smaller macular holes, those less than the 250 micron mark that Dr. Schrader mentioned earlier, and that it's in general better for smaller areas of focal areas of adhesion and less good for broad adhesions or those associated with epiretinal membranes. But that's, you know, just book knowledge that we've got from reading it. We, I don't think we've seen people really use it too much we have it in the fridge. So <laughs> we, we'd love to hear uh, from you, Dr. Schreeder, your perspective on do you use it ever? Like are there situations where you find it useful? That's a great question. So there's history here. And this, this is funny to think about how things change. So I remember when I was finishing residency and going to fellowship, which wasn't long ago, acroplasma was a very hot topic. I mean, it was being presented at meetings. The MIVI Trust had been published not, uh, not that far before that. And, and people at Wills, when I got there, were still using it. Um, it really fell out of favor for for a couple of reasons. I think so from an OCAPS perspective, as you guys covered pretty much everything, I think it's the only FDA-approved medical therapy available for holes in the MIVI Trust trial. So just to give perspective, it was acroplasmin versus a saline injection. And so with just saline, you know, some of these holes closed, and it was small holes, and some of the VMT releases in the pure VMT cases, um, you know, the 10% you referenced. Uh, acroplasmin fell out of favor for a couple of reasons. One is the success rate is better than, than sham, but it's not... More than 50%, you know, it's still less than half of these patients actually get success with an injection. It's not an inexpensive medication. It has to be stored and, and prepared in a certain way, which can be tough for practices out there. And the biggest concern was there was these handful of patients in the MIVI Trust trial where they lost vision and had these ERG changes and outer retinal changes. And the vision loss was unexplained and lasted for up to a year in some of these patients. Now, all these patients returned to baseline vision, but the, there was some controversy, and I don't want to get into it, about why that happened. And so for various reasons, acroplasma never really caught on uh, with the retina community. Um, and so really more of the treatment options people think about are, are surgical. There are other medical options that have been used off-label. People have described case reports of using topical non-steroidal drops to close small holes associated with cystoid macular edema. Some people describe using topical carbonic anhydrase inhibitors for small holes. Um, and there's a percentage of these holes that will close with observation. So there's everyone has a story. You, know, you talk to enough retinal surgeons of someone, they were about to take the surgery, and holding, the patient says, you know, my vision's a lot better, and they look in, the hole is closed. And so that can happen. Um, but really, surgery is the mainstay for most doctors out there. And that usually involves a vitrectomy, peeling the internal limiting membrane, and placing gas. You know, just, again, historical perspective, there used to be a time they wouldn't peel the ILM. They would just put gas, and a certain number of these would close. And so some doctors, Clement Chan, most notably among them, he's off in the uh, Palm Springs area, I think, in, in California. 
he's published on just injecting gas in the clinic, even for small holes. That's been reported when it's called pneumatic vitriolysis versus logic vitriolysis for vitreomacular traction alone. And, and that has pretty decent success, just gas. But for small holes, the success is there, but it's still not that high. Because a lot of times what will happen is you'll get a PVD to form. There's traction at the edge of the hole, but the hole won't close. Um, and so ILM peeling was introduced, and that drastically improved the success rates of these holes closing. And for a small, medium hole, the success rate with surgery is very high, you know, 90 to 95 percent and above, depending on um, the case series you look at. For larger chronic holes, the success rate is lower. And, you know, the two controversies are how long should the gas last that you use to tamponade the hole? And how long do you position a patient face down to put the gas directly with surface tension on the hole? Is it necessary? And we're not going to get into that there, but those are both very, very controversial in the field of retina. And then, you know, I think that really covers what residents should know for the um, for the boards or OCAPs. Maybe just to go just one step further, can you help us get an idea of when you decide to take patients to surgery? Is it symptomatic? Is it based on a certain visual acuity cutoff? Or is it, you know, just more complicated than that? That's a great question. So, and I have the whole range. And I'll just give you examples from my clinic, like say the last month. So, patient um, I saw in early mid-May. Um, she had a history, and macular holes are rarely bilateral, but can happen. She had a history of a macular hole for years ago in her other eye that was chronic, and, and she never had good vision, and never had surgery for it. It was 2,400 when she presented and didn't want to do anything, poor prognosis. And then her right eye presented, she was asymptomatic, but she had a macular hole forming, and she was 2025. 20, but her OCT, which we were scanning and were visiting, routine follow-up showed a macular hole. And she was 2025. 20, she was able to see around it, and she was very keen to avoid surgery. And so the first question is, this is an emergency. So if you sit on it, is it like a retinal detachment where if you sit on it, are they going to lose permanent vision? And the general philosophy, from my understanding, is that no, you, you have some degree of time. Again, some of these can close spontaneously. So usually what I'll do for a patient like that who's not keen on surgery, I'll say, look, you know, I think a lot of these end up needing surgery. But if you don't want to do surgery, you know, I can reexamine you in a month, repeat the OCT. If you want to try a topical drop, there's some case reports of this working. And then we can reassess in a month and repeat the OCT and see how it's trending and see how it's going. And just understand that there's a chance that you may need surgery soon after. Because you really, if their vision's dropping the next time you see her, and she came back and her vision had dropped to about 2040, and she was like, she was symptomatic at that point, and she wanted to do the surgery. And I said, okay, we're going to get it done within the next week or two, so not delay it too much. But, but macular holes aren't an emergency in the context, but generally I try to do them within about four weeks of presentation around set of symptoms. It's kind of an arbitrary cutoff. You could probably extend that further. I've had patients, for example, who were referred by outside doctors who went on vacation before I even met them and came back months later and had surgery and had good outcomes. But generally, if I had a macular hole, I'd probably want it done within a, within a month. But you're right. If they're not, they're generally symptomatic. But if they're not symptomatic, just like anything in ophthalmology, you have to think hard about whether you want to take an asymptomatic patient to surgery, uh, unless you really think the prognosis is going to be grim if you don't. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Schrader. And I think we had a bit about the utility of internal limiting membrane peel, but honestly, again, episode 173, straight from the cutter's mouth, goes into that at a much higher level. Maybe we can defer to your episode <laughs> for that part. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think for small and medium holes, people generally agree on what to do. I think it's for the larger chronic holes. There's, if you go to, ever go to a retina meeting, you'll see whole sessions and different techniques. And there's probably 10 or 15 different techniques people have invented for those large chronic holes. And unfortunately, they're not common enough to, to know which one's the best technique. You just have case series, case reports, small series. So um, there's different options, though. And that's what's nice about retina. There's always tons of options for many conditions. And uh, that's definitely one of them. Okay, great. All right.
Well, that brings us to the end of at least the book stuff on macular holes, at least in the BCSC. And we're very grateful to have all of that book knowledge supplemented by actual clinical experience and expertise with Dr. Jay Schreeder. Again, check out his podcast, Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, very successful, one of the longer running, highly listened to ophthalmology podcasts out there. Thanks okay. so much for uh, doing that. It was, it was great. We really appreciate it. And We're going to include a link to his podcast, Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast, as well as the links to his website and to his Twitter in the episode description. We highly recommend you check it out. It's my number one podcast when a driver commute. And that's all we have. Take care and have a great week.